If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take those and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 is where we're going to be today. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have your Bible, no worries. We will have it on the screen for you and you can follow along that way. And we don't mention this all that often, but we should. If you do not own a Bible, uh, please come and talk to us and we will be happy to get you a free Bible um, that we have here at the church. We want to make sure that everyone who, uh, who comes and, and even meets us one time has unlimited access to the Word of God. And so um, <clears throat> we don't want you to take anything that I or Aaron or Robert say up here uh, to be the truth just because we said it, but we would encourage you to challenge us, check us according to Scripture, make sure that, uh, that we are saying what Scripture says. But we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5 today, verses 1 through 10. In Hebrews so far, uh, the Holy Spirit has gone to great lengths to demonstrate for us the supremacy of Christ and, and the supremacy of the new covenant that has come through Christ. He's demonstrated this point largely, as we've seen through the chapters that we've covered so far, by taking other great figures of the Old Testament and comparing Christ to them. Using these known, understandable figures that, uh, that the listeners, the readers of the book of Hebrews, largely Hebrews themselves, the, the Jews, would understand and be able to relate to very well. And this is a very good strategy that the Holy Spirit uses and, uh, and the author of Hebrews as directed by the Holy Spirit uh, because it's a very helpful way for us as human beings to understand things. It's, uh, it's something that we do, that we are able to understand concepts, understand sizes of things, understand magnitudes of various things by comparing them to other things. I saw a, um, a YouTube video not that long ago that was just, it was purely about comparing sizes of things that we sometimes uh, don't truly understand how big some things are until we see them compared to other things. And in this video, you saw things like um, I think it, I, it was some sort of jellyfish. I don't remember what kind, but if you just saw a picture of this jellyfish like set on the backdrop of a deep blue green ocean, you would think probably that it's a normal jellyfish, maybe this big if it's a, if it's a big one. Uh, but then in this photograph, it showed the jellyfish next to a, a uh, snorkeler or a, um, uh, someone who was, who was doing some uh, diving and this thing was absolutely enormous. I mean, it dwarfed this human under the water. And, and you began to see when you saw the comparison to what a human looks like, just how massive this jellyfish is. There was one uh, picture of a, of a moose. And, and some of us don't realize just how big uh, moose are. But it showed a picture of a full-grown male moose with its rack next to a normal-sized car. Uh, and it looked like, uh, if you've ever seen a grown adult like sitting on one of those little tykes cars and like riding it down a hill with like their legs sticking out and like just totally oversized. If that moose had sat down on that car, that's what it would have looked like. And so we begin to see the, the kind of the usefulness of this strategy of comparing things that we're familiar with, uh, using them as a comparison to help understand something that maybe we are less familiar with or have a more difficult time grasping or understanding. And by doing so, the, the author of Hebrews helps us to begin to see, to begin to understand the greatness of Christ, the supremacy of Christ over all of these Old Testament figures. He demonstrates that Christ is greater than the prophets, even in the opening passages of the book where he 
says that previously the word of God came through the prophets and the apostles, but now it comes in Jesus Christ. He demonstrates that Christ is greater than the angels. In fact, spends um, basically two chapters describing Jesus' greatness over angels. These were divine messengers of God. In fact, they were instrumental in helping to mediate the law, the word of God tells us. These beings that were so powerful as we covered over the sermons back then. Jesus is greater than even these angels that the Jews held in such high esteem. He demonstrated that Christ is greater than Moses. In the the eyes of the Jews, there was no man greater than Moses. In fact, when uh, Jesus was about to be stoned by some of the Jews in, in the book of John, it was because he claimed before Moses was, or before Abraham was, I am. And so this attack on, uh, perceived attack on the patriarchs uh, was the reason that the Jews were about to stone Jesus. And yet here in the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer brings Moses into the picture and says, Moses, the writer of the law, the one who received the law from God, who wrote the Pentateuch, who wrote what were the scriptures of the Jews, he is even less than Christ. Christ is greater than even Moses. And then finally, he demonstrated in our previous chapter that Christ is greater than Joshua, the one who led the people of God into the promised land, into the rest and joy that came from the promised land and how Christ provides for us a greater rest, a greater joy than even Joshua was able to provide. And so we've seen over and over again the way Christ is supreme. Christ is greater even than the greatest of Old Testament figures. And in all these comparisons, we see Christ towering over all of these in his greatness and in his majesty And in our passage today, we see that the Holy Spirit is not done making these comparisons in order to magnify Christ, but we see in our passage today, as indicated by my title, how Christ is greater than Aaron. Christ is greater than Aaron. I wrote it in a sort of uh, mathematical way, I think, to illustrate the point that uh, that the text that we have before us here really does a very good, um, almost... uh, mathematic way of demonstrating how Christ is greater than Aaron and his priesthood. And so I'm going to read for us Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 today. For every high priest is chosen among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come today and ask that you would make us humble before your word. We ask that you would rid us of our pride and our arrogance as we come today to hear from you. Lord, there is nothing more special or more significant than hearing a word from the Lord. And that is what we have just done and what we will continue to do as we make our way through this text. And so, Lord, we ask that you would make our hearts right before you, that you would cleanse us of sin, even sin that we might commit as we study this text. Lord, we ask for clarity, for open eyes, and open hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. There are probably some of you in here that when I say that Christ is greater than Aaron, you might have wondered what it was that Aaron was known for. What is the significance of the fact that Aaron is brought into the equation, and why does it matter that Christ is greater than Aaron? A lot of us, if we've grown up in church, if we have uh, read the scriptures much, or many of us, if we have even heard some of the Old Testament Bible stories, might know who Aaron is uh, as the brother of Moses, for that's indeed who Aaron was. He was the brother of Moses. But he was more than just the brother of Moses. And it matters that Christ is greater than Aaron because Aaron was the first high priest ordained by God in Leviticus chapter 8, 9, and 10. He was not simply Moses' brother, but was specially selected by God for this most important task. And it was through his line that the high priesthood was to continue. Aaron is no small, small figure in the scripture, even though he maybe doesn't gain the credit or the attention that someone like David or like Abraham or like Moses does. Aaron is no small figure. So when I say that Christ is greater than Aaron, I'm saying that Christ, as the high priest, is greater than any high priest who has ever come before, even the very first high priest that was ever selected by God. And that is the goal that the writer seems to be seeking to accomplish here today for us, to lay out what a high priest is, we see in verses 1 through 4, and then in verses 5 through 8, we see how Christ has fulfilled the role of high priest. And then in the final two verses, we will see how Christ's priesthood is greater than any that came before. Indeed, we see the idea of Christ as the high priest is a theme that is not just here in chapters, end of chapter 4 and, and beginning of chapter 5, but this is actually a theme that spreads across uh, about six chapters, going from the end of chapter 4 all the way into chapter 10, this theme of Christ, our great high priest, continually is expounded on and brought up. And so for us, this is merely an introduction last week and this week into the high priesthood of Christ. So the author starts in verses 1 through 4 by explaining to us up front in as simple a terms as you could expect or hope for, what is a high priest in verses 1 through 4? He starts off by saying that every high priest chosen from among men, here we see 
One of the first criteria for what it is to be a high priest, when we think about the question, what is a high priest? First of all, a high priest is one chosen among men, from among men. This is a necessary aspect of the priesthood. It was necessary for a priest to be able to appropriately and accurately represent men. And the only way for that to take place, for that to occur, is if the high priest was a man himself. It's impossible to accurately, correctly, and thoroughly represent men if you are not indeed a man. It, I was reminded of this when I uh, was in college, and I thought about uh, uh, a friend of mine who had this great idea, who he said, I'm going to start a debate club. I'm going to start a debate club, and I'm going to invite people with all kinds of different worldviews than Christianity, opposing worldviews, to come, and we're going to debate. And he said, I'm going to invite uh, some of the uh, Muslims that I know to come. I'm going to invite some of the atheists that I know to come. And he said, we're going to debate. But he said, rather than, and, and this might be a common debate thing. I'm not sure because I never did do debate club or anything like that growing up. But he said, instead of the Christians, for example, arguing from a Christian perspective, they would take on the Muslim perspective and argue the Muslim point of view. And then the Muslim would take on the Christian perspective and argue from that perspective. And he said, this way it forces each of us to really dive into the other's worldview, the other's understanding, good enough that we can argue it and try to defend it against the other. And I think what he's saying makes sense. It really does. And I would, I would want... Uh, a Muslim or an atheist or, or a Jew or, or any non-Christian to study Christianity, to study it so well that they could give a defense of it. I was not opposed to that idea. But what I was opposed to and, and couldn't kind of bring myself to get on board with was the idea that I was going to have to support, going to have to argue for a position contrary to the truth and that uh, I was going to leave the truth into the hands of one who rejects it and doesn't believe it altogether. And I mean, I have a feeling that the, that the Muslims would have felt the same way and that the atheists probably would have felt the same way and, and any other group that might have been there. And so it never did come to fruition. The club never made its way. But the reason that I think it wouldn't have been a, an appropriate thing for me to do or, or probably for, for the Muslims to do is that it's not really a good thing for me to be able to appropriately represent Islam. I could never appropriately do so, or certainly not in a way that, that most Muslims would, would hope for me to do or like for me to do, because I am not Muslim. I don't believe that. I would not be able to give an appropriate defense for that. In the same way, if we as human beings are to have an appropriate representative, if we are to have an appropriate mediator, it must be from among men. It must be someone who is able to intercede for us because he knows us intimately because he is one of us. And so for this reason, the high priest was always chosen from among men. The second quality of a high priest, the second requirement, was that the high priest was to act on behalf of men in relation to God. We see this in the second half of verse one. He is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. And, and this statement gets at really the heart of the priesthood, for what was a, a priest but one who is a representative of the 
people before God. The next quality, the next requirement of the high priest was that he be able to deal gently with the people. We see this in verses 2 and 3 where the author says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. We see that this idea, this, this qualification for the priesthood goes hand in hand with the first criteria. For indeed, anyone who is chosen from among men will know and understand human weakness. The fact that the high priest was chosen from among men meant that he understood their struggle because he was right there in the thick of it with them. He understood what it meant to be wayward, what it meant to be ignorant, for he himself was beset with the same weaknesses. And it was because of this that he had to offer sacrifice for his own sin before he could ever enter into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice for the sins of the people. And this was a very useful practice of the high priesthood. This practice of having to make sacrifice for your own sin, cleansing for yourself before you can enter into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifices for the sins of the people. And it was important and essential necessary to help them maintain a proper perspective. For indeed, it's very hard to become arrogant and prideful with the people that you were called to represent whenever you yourself are having to make sacrifice for your own weaknesses, for your own sins, each and every time you make sacrifice for the sins of the people. It is a constant reminder of the fact that you too are like them, that those selected by God, you are not somehow immune to the stain of the world, to the stain of sin and the weakness and suffering that comes along with that. It was a constant reminder to them and a constant humbling for them of who they were. It also served for them as a graphic and serious reminder of the holiness of God. We know that every sacrifice for sin points us to, and every sacrifice in the Old Testament points us to the necessary requirement of the shedding of blood in order for God's wrath to be appeased. But specifically for the high priest, who knows that he is about to enter into the only place that no one is allowed to go except for him and only once a year to make this sacrifice. And he knows that he does, if he does not go in after having made sacrifice for his sin, after having been cleansed and gone through the purification that is necessary of the high priest, that if he enters into that holy of holy place, he will die because of the sheer holiness of God that resides there in that place. And so for him, it is also a graphic reminder of what will become of him if he were to do this in a wrong manner, if he were to become prideful and arrogant. And then finally, the fourth criteria that we have of the high priest is that he is appointed by God in verse four. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. No man could put himself into the role of priest any more than a person here in the United States can just put themselves into the role of president. It's not something that you can just take on for yourself. But unlike the role of president, if a person here were to try and claim that role, he would risk certain death, certain doom, certain wrath of God upon him. 
Alistair Begg, in his explanation of this passage, points out that the Jews, as they hear this explanation of the priesthood, though they would have likely already known it, they would have likely been familiar with the uh, Levitical passage where Aaron is, is ordained as the high priest, but yet as they were hearing this, they likely would have realized how badly corrupted the priesthood had become. For when we consider this last point alone, that it be a man appointed by God, they would have probably heard that and said, wow, that has not been happening. For indeed, the, the past like hundred years before Jesus came, the high priest was not appointed by God, but was appointed by the authorities, by the government, by the kings. They were taking on the responsibility of appointing priests in contradiction with what the word of God had commanded. See, the high priesthood had become utterly corrupt even by the time Jesus entered the scene and the Jews likely would have recognized that as he made this statement. So here in these first four verses, we have these requirements that are given for the instituting of a high priest. And it sounds relatively simple for us as we sit on this side of of redemption, as we know the things that we know. But we must consider that the stakes are very, very high, even in these criteria. For consider what we talked about last week when we considered King Uzziah, how he took on himself the role of a priest and entered into the temple to burn incense, a role that was not given to him, but one that was reserved for the priest. And he was immediately struck with leprosy and was cursed with leprosy for the rest of his life. Or consider even Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron in Leviticus chapter 10, who offered up strange fire, not in accordance with what God had commanded. What happened to them? The fire immediately came from the altar and consumed them dead right then and there on the spot. We begin to see the significance of the role that the high priest plays and the necessity of having the right person in that role for indeed the holiness of God is at play here. The very wrath of God will come upon any who enter into this role in an unworthy manner or who are unqualified. These criteria matter. This role matters because this is the one who is to intercede before a holy God. And that should terrify anyone who considers this position. Indeed, it would have been a great honor to be chosen as the great high priest, and yet it would have been something that would have struck fear into the heart of the high priest to recognize the significance of his job. Point number two, we then see in our passage how Christ has fulfilled this role, how all of the criteria that we have mentioned have all been met in Christ Jesus. And we start with Verses 5 and 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As these two verses indicate for us that in accordance with the requirements that we see in verses 1 through 4, Jesus did not take up this role by his own accord. But he was placed in this role. He was appointed to this role, called to this role by God. <clears throat> this is actually a rather profound 
illustration of the humanity of Christ. For indeed, if there was ever anyone who walked on this earth who was, who was actually worthy and could have taken on this role of high priest, would it not be Christ? He was perfect. He was blameless. He was upright. And yet even Christ, the very Son of God, the Almighty, the one by whom, through whom all things exist, even he was humble and did not take this appointment upon himself, but was appointed by God, as the text says. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by God. Indeed, the truth that Jesus himself proclaimed that the humble shall be exalted. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That phrase is exemplified in his humility, even here in his high priesthood. And then here in verse six, we have a specific name that is dropped, a name that will come up again throughout the book of Hebrews. But for now, I want to just introduce you to this man, Melchizedek. Melchizedek appears only two times in the Old Testament, and neither one of those occasions are very in-depth. They're both quite short. Let me introduce you to this guy. In Genesis chapter 14, right after Abraham has defeated the five kings and rescued Lot and his family who were captured during this war that had been waged, we have this passage in Genesis 14, 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of the Keldol Lomor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And then verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave a tenth, gave him a tenth of everything. So this is our introduction to Melchizedek. The only other time that Melchizedek is, in, is mentioned in the Old Testament is the psalm that's quoted for us in verse 6 of Hebrews 5. You are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Those are the only two times that he's mentioned in the Old Testament. So what do we learn about Melchizedek from this passage in Genesis chapter 14, not much really, very little. He's just mentioned briefly. But we do learn something significant from this brief interaction. And we will come back to this interesting individual later, but for now it suffices to say that he was a priest unlike any other priest. He was unique among priests, for he was called uniquely by God. In fact, he was king over Salem. That is a a pagan land. Well, we already know from our passage, that's not where priests come from. Priests come, high priests specifically, come from the line of Aaron. So we see this figure, Melchizedek here, pointed to as one who was instituted by God, not by any even lineage that he could point to, but he was instituted directly by God. In verses 7 through 8, we see Jesus' fulfillment of the priesthood even more. He says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his 
reverence. We see here in verse 7 that Jesus fulfills the requirement, fulfilled the requirement as earthly ministry and continues to fulfill the requirement of one who intercedes for the people, of one who acts on behalf of the people before God, as it says that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, specifically to him who was able to save him from death. This is an interesting statement that he makes, that he was able to save him from death, that God, the one to whom Jesus cried out, was able to save him from death. And his prayer was heard. We might wonder then as we read that passage, then why was he not saved from death? For indeed, Jesus was not saved from death, was he? Not in the sense that he didn't die, for indeed he died. We remember his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. As we read and we read of his prayer, supplications, loud cries and tears, it ought to draw to our attention, to our mind, that prayer where Jesus, as he cried out before the Lord, sweat drops of blood, as he wept in, in agony and in anguish as he considered the cup of God's wrath that was before him that he was about to drink. And what was the prayer that Jesus made? God, let this cup pass from me. And then what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. Indeed, God's will was done. Christ's prayer was heard, even though he was not saved from death, because here is the good news. Though he was not saved from death, his death on the cross, his sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection did bring victory from death. It did save from death. Who did it save from death? Us. Those of us who are united to him in his death, burial, and resurrection by our faith. So indeed, his prayer was answered and we were saved from death as his prayer went up to the one who was able to save from death. The author here points to the earthly ministry of Christ as more evidence of his qualification for priesthood. We see also, noting that he is chosen from among men. We see this indicated throughout the book that Jesus was truly a man. And we see it again here in verse 7. As the phrase is, says, in the days of his flesh. Jesus is able to represent men because he is a man. He is a good representative for us, a valid one. This was the way God chose his priests. He selected them from among men. He did not manifest priests. He did not manifest mediators in their presence, in their midst, those who would intercede. He chose them from among men so that they would be true and appropriate representatives of the people. Jesus Christ was chosen as a man to represent men. So we see these qualifications being met in Christ, that he acts on behalf of men, that he was chosen from among men, that he is able to sympathize with our weakness as we learned last week from Hebrews chapter 4. And we see, finally, as point number three comes, that not only has Christ fulfilled this role, but the question we must ask is, how is Christ's priesthood different? For indeed it is. We know it is because we read in verses one through four, he was obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. 
That alone indicates for us a significant difference, a significant deviation from the high priesthood of Christ than any other high priest who has ever come before, even Aaron. Not only has Christ fulfilled the role of high priest for us, but he has filled in the places where the former priest fell short, where the former priests were lacking, specifically in two ways. Number one, Christ's priesthood had no end because he is eternal. We see this in in verse 10, and it is a reiteration of what we saw in verse 6. He says, being designated by God as a high priest as after the order of Melchizedek. What is the order of Melchizedek in verse 6? You are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verses 6 and verses 10 indicate to us, as we saw last week, that Christ was not just Uh, has not just fulfilled this role once for one time and that's it, but that he continues in this role even now. Even now sits at the right hand of God, interceding for us, making intercession for us, mediating on our behalf. And he will continue in this role now and tomorrow and forever. His high priesthood is forever, as the Holy Spirit tells us in chapter 7 of Hebrews verses 23 and 25. We are going to get to chapter 7 and we're going to dive in even deeper and deeper into the priesthood of Christ. But specifically, I want us to look here for this. He says in verses 23 and following of chapter 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that being Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. There's a great amount of good news wrapped up in those verses, is there not? He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. How? Through him. That through Jesus Christ, even today, sinners can draw near to God. That through Jesus Christ, 10 years from now, if the Lord wills, and we are still here, he has not returned, sinners will be able to draw near to God through Christ. We, church family today, can stand up here, confess our sinfulness before God, confess our guilt, and yet draw near to God. Why? Because of the continual priesthood of Christ that we can draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. We will never not need Christ's intercession. The good news is he will never stop interceding for us for he is high priest forever. The second improvement that we see on the Aaronic priesthood is that Christ, unlike all the high priests who came before him, was without sin. And we talked about it a little bit last week, but we have to recognize why it is that this matters. For if Jesus were a sinful human being, what would he have to do in order to make sacrifices for sin? He would have to make sacrifices for his own sin. If he were a sinful human being, what would that mean about the sacrifice of himself? It would mean that it was no good that it was not able to appease God's wrath because it was not perfect, 
because it was not holy, because it was not the sacrifice that was needed. It was a blemished lamb. But indeed, Christ was not a blemished lamb. He was the lamb without spot, without blemish. He was perfect. He was white as snow. And in his perfect obedience, in his perfection, he dies on the cross and achieves for us forgiveness of sins. It's made only possible because Christ was sinless. And in this way, he is the better high priest. Hebrews chapter 7 again says it beautifully and concludes chapter 7 by saying this in verse 26 through 28, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And more than that, he is the priest to end all priests. No other mediator is required. No other intercession is needed for Christ is our intercessor. He is our high priest forever. And the one who was able to do so, the one who was able to appropriately make sacrifices for us, not forever, not every day, not every year, but one time for all. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. This is why today we do not have priests in our church. This is why we do not recognize any need to go to a, a pastor or a church leader in order to find forgiveness and remission of your sins. That is found only in Christ alone. Not in a confessional booth, not in a sacrament, not in any human institution. But it is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. He is our high priest. He is our mediator. The point of this sermon and the point of what the Holy Spirit says is not that Aaron was terrible. Again, as we said previously, when Jesus was compared to the angels and to Moses, it is not the case that the writer is seeking to put down Aaron, that he was some terrible, awful priest, or that he tried to put down Moses, say that he wasn't actually that great, or that he tried to put down the angels and say they are not actually that powerful. The point is to say, think of how great a priest Aaron was. Think about how great Moses was, the writer of the law. Think about how powerful the angels are. And then take what you know of them to be true and consider Christ, who is greater, who is more powerful, who is the better mediator of the better covenant. Indeed, consider how much greater Christ is in his priesthood than any of the old covenant priests. Think about how much better the system that we have now under the new covenant is than the old system, than the old covenant. The old covenant, when you consider what was required to make sacrifices for sin, what was required to go to the priest daily, to go to uh, seek to have your sins forgiven as you went through these practices of, of taking these animals and sacrificing them. Think of the work that the priests had to do to constantly, constantly, 
constantly shed the blood of these animals. It was cumbersome. It was burdensome. It was heavy. But consider why it was so cumbersome, why it was so heavy, why it was so much work. It was because our God is so holy. Everything that you see represented in the old covenant, everything that you see in the sacrificial system, all of that is intended and ought to cause us to see the seriousness of our sin against a holy God. And we begin to see this, when we begin to understand it, when we begin to see how inadequate the old covenant was in the sacrificial system, it causes us great joy, great pleasure, great excitement when we consider the greatness of Christ who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. In the law, we find burden. We find it to be cumbersome. We find it to be unable to give us rest, unable to satisfy us. But in Jesus Christ, through the new covenant, we find rest, we find hope, we find joy. What is the source of eternal salvation? As the writer concludes in verse 9, he says, Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. There's only one source of salvation, and it is not a temporary salvation. It is not a salvation for today only, but it is eternal. Meaning that he is also the source of salvation for all of those living under the old covenant all of those making sacrifices, all of those taking animals to the priest to be slaughtered, all of them, the source of their salvation was not that animal. It was not those turtle doves. It was not those bulls. It was not their observance of the Sabbath, even though they were commanded to do all of that. Their eternal salvation is Jesus Christ, the source. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And in that we find rest, and in that we rejoice, and in that we place our hope. Let's pray.